0: number 149 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm the online editor of the Northern Miner. I also help take care of the social media and we have a lot going on on the social media. We have our TNM Leaders, a new series we announced in the summer and we've been releasing one a week and that's been a lot of fun. You can get basically top mining executives. You can hear about what their their thoughts on philosophy and life, we have John Bianchini last week uh, from Hatch. You can also find events listed there. We have the Progressive Mind Forum, which is coming right up here in mid-October. If you want to learn more about the Progressive Mind Forum, just go to northernminer.com slash PMF2019. You can find us online at northernminer.com and on Twitter at northernminer and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook and LinkedIn. Turning to the website, we have quite a few new stories here. A lot are related to Mexico. Yeah, and probably the most head turning of them all was the president of Mexico, Lopez Obrador, saying that no new mining concessions would be granted in Mexico. The actual quote, let's go to it here. President Lopez Obrador said the government will, quote, keep the current concessions and not hand out new concessions because they aren't needed, closed quote, according to Reuters on August 12th. So the northern miner emailed Camamex, which is the country's mining chamber, and the reply from a spokesman was, even though the announcement is not official, we are evaluating its potential impact. So it sounds like, This is something that the Mexican president feels like, you know, in a sense, it's similar to the U.S. president, where he will just really almost announce feelings about policy online, almost test them out and then see what sort of reaction it generates and act accordingly. So it seems like the Mexican president is doing a similar tactic, intentionally or not. And I guess that's just a comment on our politics today. This is how it works. Maybe the bureaucracies have become so huge that even the presidents feel powerless. And so now they just put out their ideas online first and see see how everybody reacts. Of course, the mining industry is a little concerned in Mexico. They are known as the world's top silver producer and one of the largest producers of copper and gold in the world. And they attract a huge amount of global exploration spending. We have a quote from Agnico Eagle, who I thought gave a fairly stately reply, or shall we say diplomatic. Agnico Eagle's mine spokesman Dale Coffin confirmed his company is among those working through CamMX on gaining a better understanding and clarification from senior government officials on exactly what this all means. Coffin added that, for now, our operations and exploration projects in Mexico have not been impacted. It's business as usual. So that's an article to take a look at. Nevertheless, business continues in Mexico. Uh, Silvercrest recently got the green light from Mexico's Environment Ministry to develop its Las Chispas gold-silver project, and analysts seem quite positive on the story and on the project. And on the security front in Mexico, we have this other story about Telson Mining, who recently closed a mine called Campo Morado, which was primarily a zinc mine. And the company states that it seems to be primarily security and safety concerns is the reason why the mine was closed. Metal prices, particularly zinc, hasn't helped as it's around the dollar level but it sounds like security was the main instigator. We have a quote from Ralph Shearing, who's president of Telson Mining and quote, at US $1.01 to cent zinc, it's a marginal project. We can still make money at it, but there are other factors that have come into play here that forced our company to make decisions on whether to keep this thing running or shut it down. So those other factors that he's talking about, it sounds like security. And it's, as I like to say with security, it's sort of like security's not really an issue until it becomes an issue. And when it does become an issue, it's the issue. It brings out all those primal things, uh, fears, really. So security has become an issue for Telson Mining. And so they're shutting it down. But they do have another project that they're shifting towards. And it's a gold project and gold prices are going up. So Maybe that will work out for them in the end. And that gold project is in Durango State, and it's called the Tahuahueto Mine. And keeping with the governmental theme, we also have a story by our new writer, Jean Lien, and she wrote this great story, Logic and Law Will Prevail, says Plateau CEO on Peru Claims Dispute. I guess Plateau Energy Metals is having a dispute with the government of Peru, particularly the Instituto Geológico Minero y Metallúrgico, which wants to cancel 32 of its 149 concessions in Peru. Basically this agency, it acts under the Peru's Ministry of Energy and Mines. So it's a governmental agency. Plateau disagrees with this. They said there was administrative delays and errors related to uh, incorrectly applying penalties to the company for underspending on work commitments at the concessions in question. The company launched an appeal to overturn the decision, and MINEM, Peru's Ministry of Energy and Mines, held two meetings and announced that the Plateau Energy Metals appeal had been rejected. So Plateau's CEO, Alex Holmes, has replied and said that the company has three months to launch another appeal. Quote, we have not lost the concessions at this point in time, Holmes says in an interview with the Northern Miner on August 13th. He clarifies that the process to rectify the situation was of an administrative nature since the appeal was not rejected through a court of law. And he continues, quote, at the end of the administrative procedure, if the outcome is still not favorable to us, then there's the judicial path which we can pursue. So they haven't given up hope, finally, Holmes said, we're going to let the appeal process play itself out and see what the outcome is. Logic and law will prevail here ultimately, close quote. So Holmes keeps the faith that the Peruvian government will stick to what he sees as law and order. And so, yeah, it sounds like a bit of a, sounds like dealing with your cable company or something and something goes wrong and all of a sudden you get in a quagmire and uh, reality turns to gray goes from black and white to gray and so yeah so that's just an interesting story peru generally has a pretty good reputation you don't see too many stories about peru seizing land or seizing mineral rights or claims so let's see what happens i mean it's a massive mining country and so it's just something to keep tabs on could be an early warning sign or just an anomaly And last, but definitely not least, is the Northern Miner has a story about itself on the website, which is we are announcing uh, the first academic scholarship by the Northern Miner as part of the Young Mining Professionals Toronto Branch Scholarship Program. The Northern Miner joins partners Barrick Gold, Agnico Eagle Mines, IM Gold, Yamana Gold, Anaconda Mining, and Orefinders Resources to fund a series of $1,000 to $10,000 scholarships for a total of $44,000 for Canadian university students, both undergraduate and graduate, enrolled in the 2019 academic year and pursuing a career in mining. The Northern Miner Future of Mining Scholarship will provide one $5,000 scholarship funded by the Northern Miner to an individual with a vision for the future. And further, uh, the best submitted essay will have an opportunity to be presented in the Northern Miner as one of our very friendly Twitter follower friends said, uh, this is your chance to be immortalized in the Northern Miner." So the deadline is coming up. It's August 31st. So get those pens and pencils sharpened and submit your essay because $5,000 goes a long way, particularly when you're a student. If you want more information on how to apply, just go to the Northern Minor website and go to TNM Launches, Northern Minor, Future of Mining Scholarship, and all the links and information are there. Turning to metal prices, we have a lot of drama over here. Uh, We have gold has shot right back up, and it is at $1,529.99 per ounce. This is on August 27th, Tuesday, and silver has shot up to $17.71. So the uptrends continue for the precious metals. Platinum is at $858.04, and palladium is at $1,478.12, and we have aluminum at 79 cents. Copper, significantly, is at $2.53, so it continues its decline, probably on these trade war fears, one imagines. Crude oil is at $58.93 per barrel, so also sort of Hovering in the lower area of its 52-week range, we have aluminum at $0.79 per pound, lead at $0.94 per pound, nickel a little lower at $7.15 per pound, and tin is at $7.28 per pound. And finally, cobalt is at $14.29 per pound. Our main feature today is our NextGen Leaders panel discussion from the Canadian Mining Symposium in May. Uh, This was our final panel of the day, and these guys did a great job. It was led by Patrice Marin, who is the moderator, and she's a director at Glencore. And the panel included Frederick Bell, who's a managing director at Elemental Royalties, Sean Usmar, CEO of Triple Flag Mining Finance. Olivia Markham, director and portfolio manager at BlackRock, and Dean Brownsteiner, national mining leader for PwC Canada. And these guys did a great job, as you can see, as you can hear, it's an all-star cast. And they talk about, you know, basically it's, uh, it has a lot to do with millennials in the workplace and the different expectations of millennials uh, towards what they expect from the older generation and also what they expect from the mining industry as a whole. The idea of having a social license to operate. And this isn't just true about mining, this is across the economy. It's a nice overview of millennials and the mining industry and from a few different, very diverse points of view. And it's a great panel. So we hope you enjoy the discussion. I'll see you on the other side. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of juniors with mines and advanced projects in the Yukon. You can check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at investyukon. We're going to take a small musical break and then we'll come back with our segment on the next generation of mining leaders recorded live at the Canadian Mining Symposium in London in May.
1: All right, we have a very interesting panel coming up now on the next generation of leaders and what are the attributes and key traits that we'll be looking for in the future generation to drive the industry forward. I think for this one, what we'll do is uh, I'm going to introduce the uh, special guest moderator, Patrice Marin first, and then if it's okay with you, Patrice, I will just introduce the names of everyone. Uh, names and titles and then if we want to delve in a little bit more on people's backgrounds there'll be plenty of time to do that. So while they're grabbing a seat let me introduce Patrice. Honoured to have Patrice join us flying all the way in from Toronto. Patrice Marin is the independent non-executive director of Glencore. Following initial roles with Molson and Canadian Pacific, Patrice worked at Sherritt, the Canadian diversified miner, for 10 years until 2004 and latterly, she served as COO. She then became CEO of Lusker, Canada's largest thermal coal producer. Patrice was director of the Alberta Climate Change and Emissions Management Corporation from 2009 until 2014. She was also a member of the Canadian Advisory Panel on Sustainable Energy Science and Technology from 2005 to 2006, and from 2003 to 2006 was a member of Canada's Roundtable on the environment and the economy. So an incredible track record and experience that Patrice brings to the table. Thank you for joining us. Now, in terms of our panel, sitting beside Patrice, we have Frederick Bell. He's a managing director of Elemental Royalties and the representative of the millennial generation. Sorry, Frederick. No (laughs) No pressure at all, the weight of a generation on your shoulders. Sitting beside Frederick, we have Sean Usmar, the CEO of Triple Flag Mining Finance. Sitting beside Sean, we have Olivia Markham, Director and Portfolio Manager at BlackRock. Thank you for joining us, Olivia. And finally, here to my right, we have Dean Bronsteiner. He's the National Mining Leader for PwC Canada. Thank you to all of our panelists. And Patrice, please take it away. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Anthony. And uh, welcome to all the uh, people who've got the stamina to be here at uh, almost 4 o'clock this afternoon, having started at 8.15, and some of you with jet lag, and some people who just flew in, like Sean. Uh, So we're delighted to be here. And this, I think, is quite a nice change-up from some of the sessions that we've had during the day. We've heard from Mark Bristow and others about generational change in the industry and uh, how much uh, senior executives enjoy uh, having uh, uh, the new generation coming along and their ability to open up uh, opportunity for them. So I think this is a this is actually, as we all know, talent, is, this is a people business, and this is a very important issue. So I'm delighted that everyone agreed to be on our panel today. We're going to start with a lightning round, and the lightning round is what your children probably really think about you, but the lightning round is, I wish mining executives would be more. Now, all of these people here are executives in their own right, but let's just start to uh, on the far side uh, Olivia, then Dean, Sean and Fred, quick, quick, mining executives should be more like
3: I wish they were greater owners of their
2: companies and thought of their companies as private companies. Greater owners, great Dean?
4: Um, I, I would say they should tell a better compelling story, I mean mining is such a great industry going into you know, parts of the world that are, are fairly remote, they bring clean water, schools, education and I think that's something to be celebrated and I'm not sure they're doing a good enough job with that
2: Better story, Sean.
4: A little like
5: Olivia, um, long t- like long,
4: long-term owners. Uh, we need
6: more of that.
2: Great, Fred?
6: a bit biased sir But I'll say there should be more like millennials coming into the industry.
2: We're trying, believe me. <laughs> All right, on to Olivia then. Olivia, what do you look for when you're looking at management teams as a metric or as an as emblematic of how successful you think a business will be?
3: Yeah. So I think. Um... As everyone knows, you know the mining industry is—it's a, a pretty small industry in the scheme of things. And um, in some out of various ways, you always know a management team from either another company or a, another level within a, within a company. And I think what I've seen time and time again—it's it's those uh, executives that can have you know a really strong strategic vision uh, for their business. You know, they're not. Focus solely on the day-to-day kind of operational challenges or the day-to-day um, kind of concerns that shareholders have, they're thinking more about where do we want to take the business in five years' time, where do we want to take the business in ten years' time. So I think it's, it's management teams that can do that. Um, another clear one, which you know, can be heavily criticised in the mining sector, is, is capital discipline. And I think, you know, we are seeing a real change in this, and this, that's great to see, but, you know, it's, it's companies that can appropriately balance keeping a kind of conservative strong um, financial position growing and returning kind of the benefits to shareholders so I think that's another really key thing and then kind of back to my earlier point I think it's finding those executives who are shareholders of their company and are running the company to create value for shareholders not just to dig you know produce products and, and increase volumes.
2: So, Sean, as a leader, how do you think you inculcate that or, in fact, exemplify it? I'm a big believer in leadership by example, and uh, I know you exemplified that, so tell us a bit about that.
5: I think we just start with inclusion. In my experience in certainly bigger mining companies, the secret's not that hard very often. It's trying to engage the workforce in a way which you see very often on mine sites, but somehow there's often a disconnect with a corporate office. You'll see a a siloed sort of mentality at times between you know, operations, technical services, finance. And it's funny, I don't think anybody turns up to work wanting to do the wrong thing, but the minute you can get a bit of different you know, difference of perspective, perhaps a little bit of tension going between those perspectives, you get new ideas, and with that you can actually make some really disruptive change. And I think if you can incorporate that and you ground it in reality, but start thinking more towards the future that strategic discussion doesn't become just sort of an annual event that you dust off the shelf and go through you know, this time next year. It becomes a, a real living experience that I think can really drive change in an organization.
2: Dean, uh, in your role uh, through PwC, what do you see in the most successful teams that, that you're servicing?
4: Uh, well, it's a couple of things. And so what we're seeing, um, which is great, is it really comes down to diversity uh, in teams. And, and the reason I say that, is when you get you know, different perspectives around the room, decisions seem to be made in a much more efficient and, and logical way. Um, I've got the benefit of going to lots of board and audit committee meetings. And so if you've got a, a board or, or an audit committee that doesn't look like management, they tend to ask better questions and they're not just there to kind of justify whatever the deci- decisions are, but really challenge. And I think that's important. Um, and it's, diversity is about gender, but it's also about getting the millennials involved. You know, there's a certain perspective out there from millennials about what mining is and what it shouldn't be, uh, but mining's not going anywhere. I mean, we need it. I mean, everybody's on their iPhone texting or sending messages or tweeting, mean, you can't do that without mining. I know we talked a little bit this morning about, well, you know, the industry, industry's at a bit of a crossroads, but it's not going anywhere. It's going to be here, and so the thing is how do you engage all different groups of individuals to be part of whatever the solution is, as opposed to, and I hate to say it, the you know the 55, 60 year old white male engineer who's driving the process. I mean that's that's not going to work anymore.
2: So Fred, this gives you a real opportunity to tell us what is so special about millennials and their contribution to teams.
4: Okay,
6: I'll, I'll try and represent an entire generation. So it's heavy. Here. It's heavy yeah. duty. Um, I I think probably one of the first things is certainly talking to friends, people my age. I think environmental, social, is probably gonna be one of the biggest factors uh, in getting people into the industry, but also people in the industry wanting to be proud of the business they work for. Um, And I think that that's probably gonna be a driver, getting people into the industry, but also not just to maintain the standards, but actually build on them going forwards. I think something else um, that might, people, younger people might bring as well is, and Mark Bristow touched on it earlier, is uh, familiarity with technology. Um, and a friend of mine who's actually um, in in the Army here, and he, for drone operations now, they actually use Xbox controllers just because they they assume that people are gonna be more familiar with that than anything else that they're gonna create. And it was interesting to read the other day that in Australia, Fortescue are doing the same thing for some of their drill rigs now, actually, and they're using um, Xbox controllers as well. Um, Because people, younger people coming in, it's something they can pick up and sort of get to grips with straight away. Um, And so I think that technological Um, aspect to it, people being familiar with technology, um, that's going to be a help. And then maybe one last thing is, I think, network increasingly. Um, You know, from someone who I grew up uh, for a part of my life in Hong Kong, the Philippines, I worked in Australia, I went to school in England, went to university in Scotland, I've worked in, you know, a lot of different countries around the world, and, you know, 20 years ago, I might not have been able to stay in touch with most of those people who I worked with. And when we set up Elemental, you know, both my partners are in Australia. Um, you know, pretty much only two of us here in London, and that's a company that could not have happened, and would not have happened. You know, even 10 or 15 years ago, I don't think.
2: I think that's true, and it's really the way the world is today. When you look at the populations available to you uh, for your workforce, uh, Sean, maybe that leads uh, directly, if you'd like to tell us, into your naming of your company.
5: Oh, yeah, and the name is, um, I named it after my kids. Um, like Fred, I've uh, worked in, lived in different places, five different countries, and uh, had kids in three of them. So, three flags, uh, three countries.
2: Yeah, well, I think that's very emblematic of the industry, you know, for sure. Olivia, picking up on Fred's mentioning of environment uh, sustainability and governance, where does that fit? I mean, BlackRock certainly has a voice in this. Where do you feel it in the in-house because you're covering this industry? Do you have an extra special duty in this area?
3: Yeah, I mean, for you know, obviously in recent years, ESG is sort of becoming in vogue and there's a huge amount um, of uh, potential capital out there in the market that is sort of ESG focused. Um, for us on the team we've always been focused on ESG, and, and we kind of describe it quite simply as having a social licence to operate. Uh, and I think that's absolutely key for, for companies, because as soon as you lose that, you know, it it's really is quite... Um, you know, it's very, very, very material for share prices. Um, you know, if I think about, kind of, if we're looking at um, a new client that might be interested in the fund, a new mandate, there wouldn't be a single um, kind of request that doesn't incorporate how we involve ESG um, in our investment uh, process. Now, for personally, for, for us on the team, we don't run hard exclusions against thermal coal or, or things like that, but you know, there are, there's obviously a pool of capital out there that does, and that's estimated now to be sort of $19 trillion. So you, you can't ignore these these numbers. I think in Europe, it is more advanced than what you see probably in the US, what you see in Asia, but that is the direction of travel. And I think if... You know, there's now much more um, data on it. It's much easier to kind of assess companies on it. You know, clients are demanding it from us. And we're also beginning to see now that companies that adopting ESG, that are good at ESG, make it front and centre, tend to outperform companies that don't, particularly over the longer term. So it's not just about it's nice to do, it. it's the right thing to do. Actually, it makes sense from an investment perspective.
2: Yes, certainly. I think it's, it's the way we look at safety. As a measure of productivity, paying attention to the business, and so on. It really, if you have terrible safety statistics, you know, nobody's managing the business. uh, So it's very much front and center. Dean, how is PWC as a stated commitment to diversity and and, Cognitive diversity, behavioral diversity, and so on. On your teams, on your audit teams, are you able to have that as a client-facing factor as well? And are any clients, such as the people in this room, asking to make sure that you know the team they get, if they operate in several continents and so on, sort of reflects and can relate to the business?
4: We're certainly seeing, especially for some of the global uh, audit proposals that come out, uh, part of the process is to talk about diversity on your team. So it's, it's front and center. Uh, not just from a Canadian perspective, but the different locations that we're operating yes. in. From a PwC perspective, we're actually quite fortunate that 50% of our, our new starts, it's gender balance. And so about eight years ago, our senior partner came to the partnership and said, we have a real big challenge here because we're bringing in 50-50 gender split, but when we get to partner, we've got a 75-25 partner split, which is not acceptable. And so we'll give him his due that... He put a line in the sand and said, by 2020, first-year partner admits need to be 50-50 gender split. And so 2019, we got to 43%, and we're, hopefully, Touchwood will be on track for 2020. There was a lot of sort of discomfort initially with that, because people started to think, well, you're setting quotas, and that's not the right thing to do. But the pushback from from most of the male partners was, well, we're bringing in 50-50 anyway, so there must be something wrong with our process and why aren't we keeping that top talent? Uh, and it's becoming a real challenge to keep, I'll say, top female talent because they're quite in demand now because industries like mining are focusing on that as well and it's, it's tough to keep them in one location because they're, they're very well sought after and, and even on boards. Uh, we just did a recent study, uh, the top 40 mining companies, uh, just to throw out a, a few statistics because I'm an accountant. Um, so, of the top 40, at the board level, there's about a 22% female representation. But the thing that was most interesting, there's 15% of those companies that have zero female directors. And these are, North, some of them are North American, European, so it's not just sort of the kickback was, well, most of them would be based out of countries where perhaps, you know, the female agenda is not there. The other interesting thing was of executive management. About 25% of the top 40 companies have zero females in executive management. So the industry talks about trying to promote gender diversity, uh, but it sounds good. But unless you're actually doing something about it, it's just paying lip service to it. Um, so I think that's a, a challenge that the industry does face as well.
2: So from from the younger end looking, Fred, how do you think how do you think this this hall full of people, hall full of senior executives should actually be addressing this kind of gap, and this continuing gap despite intentionality.
6: I think one of the big drivers is actually the the image of the industry and um, I would say that part of it, getting people into the industry at a young age and a friend of mine went to, uh, she's a female geologist now and uh, she went to speak at Imperial um, to you know on people studying a geology course and at the end she said you know put your hand up if you're planning to go into mining and on an imperial course of people studying geology, one person put their hand up. And actually, it's sort of you know she was expecting you know the majority on something like that. So, it I suppose speaks to uh, probably partly an image issue. Um, people still look at legacy issues from mining and associate it with what it is today. And if I speak to most people, um, I would say in sort of 20s or 30s, um, you know about mining, their image is something that is completely the opposite of anything I've experienced actually in the mining industry. Um, And I think that that's uh, probably a a challenge for a lot of sort of senior, major mining companies to address. Um, And I think Anglo-American, and there's one or two others, uh, I think the Mineral Councils of Australia, have done some really good campaigns to highlight the way that mining feeds into, like Dean said, feeds into all technologies, you know, things that people use in their everyday life that they completely forget, you know, how many mines and how many different things went into building that. And I think if you can help get over that stigma, um, you'll go some way to getting more people in the industry from the outset. And if you can do that, then hopefully you can retain them as they go through.
2: So that, of course, speaks to the culture that we represent and the culture we're trying to attract people to. Sean, from a large company perspective, how do you think that culture of inclusion or welcome occurs?
5: I actually think everybody fundamentally wants to be able to belong to something and be able to make a difference. And I think in larger organizations, also often either through hierarchy, too many committees or whatever it is, that sort of signal to noise ratio is distorted. There's just not enough forward momentum and the ability of, of less senior voices to be heard. Mm-hmm. And you know, I know having built this company over the last three years, that was exactly one of the things we wanted to avoid. The quietest guy in our group is often the most thoughtful and he's the most junior. And um, trying to make sure that we can have some constructive tension yes. on ideas and everyone can be heard. We don't all have to agree, yeah. but um, I really think that's enabled us to get things done and get things done in a, in a different and creative way. And I think that's not always obvious in larger organizations, whether it's through a, a diversity lens or a, an ageist lens or whatever
2: that might be yes it's it's amazing with the amount of organizational psychology we have that it seems to me so few people are intentional about team formation or just about the, you know the introverts always lose the, you know the lab must always win mining's a bit militaristic a bit hierarchical which again you know you have to spend so many years doing this job then so many years doing that job and that's really not you know we, we, we haven't learned you know the benefits of mixing it up for instance and giving you know we're, we're, we still tend to be kind of siloed and again I think that range of range of experience is something that young people love you know it's it's, it's yes I started out here I'm a geologist but I'd like to go over there and I'd like to go over there and, and there are applications of all of these things, for sure. Um, Olivia, um, BlackRock takes bets on companies. Obviously, we won't call them bets, but obviously makes investments. How about some of the qualities that ring the most true to you, and uh, and, and and make you feel that you're willing to make that investment?
3: Qualities in the companies or the management teams? In
2: the, in the, in the management, in, in the, the individuals, because we're looking at talent here and actually we don't actually talk enough, I don't think, about individuals and the kind of teams that...
3: The,
2: the qualities that individuals bring to highly successful teams.
3: Yeah, I mean, so where I've seen really successful management teams, ten, there's obviously there's, there's a CEO, but really there's a really flat structure amongst that top executive team. And there's very open lines of communication between a CFO, CEO, CEO, and actually all the way through to the board. So I think that's that's really, really, really important. Kind of, you know, once again, how I would think about scoring management teams, it's, you know, those CEOs that have a really strong strategic vision know where they want to take the company over the next five to ten years. And it's it's not something that they can be really... You know, pig-headed about it, actually they're quite open to pivot when need be and, and adjust that, but generally have a pretty strong um, view as, as to where they're going. I, I tend to also think it's, um, I think conservative isn't the right way to describe it, but people that are pretty balanced and not necessarily massive risk takers. I think where people have kind of bet the farm, um, you've seen that, you know, when cyclicality comes into the sector, that's, that's clearly unravelled for them very, very, very quickly. Um, and the other thing I'd like to say, in particular at this point in the cycle where, you know, people aren't necessarily really focused on, on growth or reinvesting, it's, it's those people that are able to build optionality back into their portfolios, you know, it's, are we spending the amount of money as an industry on exploration today, you have we got enough kind of early stage projects, are we making sure that we're testing new areas of commodity and new areas of demand, all that sort of stuff is really important.
2: Yes, for sure. Um, picking up on that and some of what Fred talked about, Dean, I'd like to ask you. Given you that you're the money guy, data guy, not that everybody isn't the money person, um, what impact do you think that millennials, or, or what impact do you think high executive compensation may have in terms of how younger people think about what is fair in the world or even-handed?
4: That's a tough question.
2: <laughs> well, you're not on a comp committee. I am, but... Uh,
4: <laughs> um, I, 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 mean, I think Mark Bristow made a comment this, this morning and, I, and that resonated with me. When we talk about compensation, I think we need to put it into perspective. Um, and so if an executive team is delivering exceptional results, one would expect them to have exceptional compensation. I don't think millennials are that different in terms of they get rewarded or they see the reward of compensation. They may have different work ethics and and whatnot, but I think at the end end of the day, we're all much pretty the same. And so I think the compensation structure to them is is, is as important as it is to the the current executive teams. And I think it acts as a motivator. I mean, at the end of the day, you do want your team to be motivated to do the right thing uh, and to, to make sure that the business prospers and has the opportunity to invest in the company. Um, I think Olivia had made the comment, one of the things that they look at is management teams who invest in their own um, story or the, the, the company that they're operating. If you're not compensating people effectively, well, how can they do that? Right. Uh, and so I think, again, it comes down to how do you tell the story? Uh, I think where the industry has had a bit of a knock is there has been a mismatch between compensation and, and actual results. And so that seems to get the focus all the time, as opposed to the companies that are doing extremely well. Uh, well, they're not really talked about. You always look at the outliers, and that doesn't help. But at the end of the day, I think you do need to put a structure in place that will continue to motivate and attract the top talent. Mining isn't necessarily the best industry at the moment. There's lots of opportunities and in, in, in different uh, spaces for people to operate. So how do you attract them? And compensation is is certainly a key element of that.
2: I certainly think that many of the young people that I have met, uh, both in mining and other industries, they they bring a value base with them, and so I do think that uh, you know compensation and what's at the top and whether it's been a good year or not, I do think people are uh, conscious of that because they think things. There's, I think, in most young people, there's a higher fairness quotient looking up.
6: Yeah, and I, you know, there's probably more visibility in a sense on what peers are earning, on what sort of, you know, senior management now, it's all public, what they're earning. So I suppose, in a way, you know, even if you don't intend to, you know, there's more of a spotlight and discussion on salaries and remuneration. Um, but I think as, you know, as I've touched on, if, you, if you're working for a good team and, you know, um, you're at a, in a good company and you feel valued, you know, I think I would speaking for myself, I'd be happy to, you know, do the legwork and sort of get up gradually and, um, you know, it's actually one thing I've learned is working with good people tends to, you know, tends to introduce you to all the good people and it's a virtuous circle. Um, and so I think that, yeah, you know, compensating people at the top fairly is, is important, but it's also, it's going to motivate the people underneath them, you know, to stick around and, and be there.
2: Well, we, we hope so. If it's not the case, then we'd all have to take a pay cut. (laughs) Wouldn't be so great. Um, Dean, how about the, uh, the industry in terms of leadership, evolution, adoption of technology? Algorithms, you know, algorithms are the the, you know the buzzword and so on. Are you doing consulting in that area? More people picking up on on what what science, machine learning, and so on. I mean, the Sandvik uh, uh, talk. I mean, we heard lots of good stuff about it. Are people asking for that?
4: There's certainly a lot of interest that we're seeing, Um, and so we often you know we'll have the meeting about you know talk about technology and digital. And my perspective is, uh, most mining companies want to be fast followers. I hear that all the time, I'm like, but someone needs to lead. Uh, there are some companies out there who, you know, are putting their, their best foot forward. But I think there's a reluctance because if something goes wrong, you're punished for it. If something goes right, I'm not sure you're re- rewarded for it. So again, what's the incentive on, on the mining companies uh, to really be kind of that first adopter? So it's, a, it's quite a challenge. It's expensive. I mean, to invest in technology, you know, comes at a price. And so when you're in a situation where uh, capital is at a premium, you, you try to figure out where is it best, you know, as a company to allocate it. But I, I truly believe it's something that needs to be dealt with. And it comes down to focusing on, well, what's the company's data or digital strategy? And how does that link to the overall company strategy? Most money companies, you know, the ones that we've worked with haven't quite figured that out. And so you've got you know, engineers at the mine site doing what I kind of call pet projects, which are kind of interesting, but it's not necessary that they all flow up in, into what the overall strategy is from a company perspective. Um, so there's a lot of great technology out there, uh, but companies need to be a little bit more forward-thinking and creative and, and getting millennials to make some of the decisions because they're the ones more comfortable with the technology. It's not you know, the 60-year-old engineers uh, because their view is, well, we've done it this way for so long; it's worked. Why would we change? Um, yeah. So there, it really needs to be a push from the bottom and from the board as well.
2: Sean, do you have any formal uh, way that, for instance, a great little pilot or something that's being tried, uh, or you've seen been tried, say in a maintenance bay, where they they really they really, they're really uh, their productivity, their reliability, their uptime, their turnaround, and so on, that for instance, just starts to translate and it goes viral across, you know, that people have methodology for then sharing that? Is is technology helping share best practice?
5: I think the short answer is yes, and I think for a long time, even in large organizations, people have attempted it, but in a very forced way at at, at times. I think technology is definitely making it easier. Um, You know, I think with, um, hopefully, if you've got the right leadership and people have inquiring minds, rather than trying to reinvent it, uh, right. Even in a, in a mining sense, looking at their competitors and others, wh- why, why go through all the trouble yourself to learn through those mistakes? And, you know, I look at um, a guy like Elon Musk with SpaceX or Tesla. Mm-hmm. It took an outsider to disrupt industries with massive barriers to entry. And I do wonder about this industry if we'll look yes. in future out of necessity and perhaps it will be a total outsider who yes. will actually come along, adapt technologies that are perhaps taken for granted in other sectors. And, uh, and shake up the sector.
2: I must say, I credit Sean with my first ride into Tesla. <laughs> but uh, I, I think that that's very interesting. It leads into my last point. I'm assuming we're close to our uh, wrap up time here. But uh, having been to lots of mine sites, all of you have been all around the globe to various places. I had a general question for our panel, which perhaps takes us back to the future in a, in a new and a fun way which is it is so almost impossible to imagine that in many of the sites we operate in, we not only make it functional and tame nature, we actually make money. So uh, when I look at some of the uh, futuristic uh, video games and movies that are being made these days, um, my wrap-up question to each of the panelists is if you could choose a mine site in which to set a world-beating video game, which mind site would you choose? So we'll just go across the floor here, starting with Dean. And you can tell us all about (laughs) the plot, too, if you want to.
4: No, when I reflected on the question, I I was thinking, I'm a bit older than the millennials, but for me it was Pac-Man. So I'm thinking, is there not a way to develop some kind of a technology so you're not moving as much material? to be able to get at whatever it is, the commodity that you're chasing. So you don't need to move you know, a ton of rock to get two grams of gold. Is there not a way to develop something that can just kind of surgically go in, find what you're looking for, and pull it out? So that was kind of my forward thinking, well maybe not so forward thinking, because it's Pac-Man, but uh, kind of technology that I would have thought could exist.
3: That's a fun one. Olivia? Um, I don't. I wouldn't say I was a huge, uh, y- you know, user of, you know, video games back in the day, but I guess I was around in the Nintendo generation, um, and I don't think I could go past something like Mario Kart. So with that, you know, flat, dry altitude, uh, that's sort of maybe helpful. So I was thinking the Atacama Desert in Chile. Ah, absolutely, Sean.
5: I love this industry and it's just the diversity of places you get to see and uh, and the people you meet. But the one that always sticks in my mind, and we talked about this earlier, is is Raglan up in the Canadian subarctic. My first visit was in minus 40, uh, for a South African was kind of egregious. And, um, you know, there's not many places on the planet where you you actually get to, you know, spend time in a a real igloo. Um, You can see three suns setting on the horizon in the depths of winter. Um, you know, the you only get in either on a seven three seven aircraft or on an icebreaker, and I think it's an environment where you could just as as almost a an out of body experience, uh, you know, the zombie apocalypse type thing. That would be a great setting for a video game. I think.
2: Absolutely, Fred.
6: Uh, I suppose this topic is this is a good question for me. Um, in terms,
2: we of, expect a lot.
6: You expect a lot. Okay, so I should have trademarked this before I before I started, but. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm a bit biased, so I'll go for South Crofty in Cornwall. Um, I think it's got a few hundred miles of workings underground, And actually, for anyone who's played GoldenEye uh, on the old uh, N64, I think you could get an awful lot of maps out from some of those workings down at South Crofty. So I think that would be a really good sort of update to
2: GoldenEye for modern generations. That's really great. Well, I was going to say Raglan, too, because it's just rock. And you almost think you can see a dy- just a huge clomping creature just come at you. But um, I do think it's important to mention uh, the snow lab in Sudbury, which won a Nobel Prize, and uh, is a very, very special use for an old mine shaft. And I think in and of itself it's a miraculous place because it has been such a place of discovery um, in physics, and it's in a mine shaft, which is the most modern thing you could do because you could only make that discovery in a mineshaft. So thank you all very much for your imagination, which is exactly what we want next-gen leaders to bring to the industry, and we welcome it from each and every person who comes in, and thank you very much for being with us this afternoon.
0: this episode of the northern Miner podcast as always please share the podcast online tell your friends about it particularly your friends in the mining industry or if you're a student uh, feel free to share it with your geological friends and uh, please review it Uh, you can if you do a review on the apple podcast directory it helps a lot in terms of raising the prominence of the podcast so we'd be very grateful for that As well, we'd just like to give one last shout out to our longtime podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. And that's all for now. So until next week, take care.